Is this on? Okay. I'll be reading from Luke eleven fourteen through 28. Jesus delivered a man from a demon that had kept him speechless. The demon gone, the man started talking a blue streak, taking the crowd by complete surprise. But some from the crowd were cynical. Black magic, they said, some devil trick he's pulled from his sleeve. Others were skeptical, waiting around for him to prove himself with a spectacular miracle. Jesus knew what they were thinking and said, any country in civil war for very long is wasted. A constantly squabbling family falls to pieces. If Satan cancels Satan, is there any Satan left? You accuse me of ganging up with the devil, the prince of demons, to cast out demons. But if you're slinging devil mud at me, calling me a devil who kicks out devils, doesn't the same mud stick to your own exorcists? But if it's God's finger I'm pointing that sends the demons on their way, then God's kingdom is here for sure. When a strong man, armed to the teeth, stands guard in his front yard, his property is safe and sound. But what if a stronger man comes along with superior weapons? Then he's beaten at his own game, the arsenal that gave him such confidence hauled off, and his precious possessions plundered. This is war, and there is no neutral ground. If you're not on my side, you're the enemy. If you're not helping, you're making things worse. When a corrupting spirit is expelled from someone, it drifts along through the desert looking for an oasis, some unsuspecting soul it can be devil. When it doesn't find anyone, it says, I'll go back to my old haunt. On return, it finds the person swept and dusted, but vacant. It then runs out and rounds up seven other spirit, spirits dirtier than itself, and they all move in, whooping it up. That person ends up far worse than if he'd never gotten cleaned up in the first place. While he was saying these things, some woman lifted her voice above the murmur of the crowd. Blessed the womb that carried you and the breasts at which you nursed. Jesus commented, even more blessed are those who hear God's word and guard it with their lives. The word the of wor God. Thanks be to God. Thank you for that reading, Lisa. You may be seated. The kids are invited to kids' church with Kelly today. Or Emily, sorry. Odd reading to send them off with. Let us take off the old self and put on the new self, is what Brian read to us from Colossians this morning. Now today's a bit of a, a weird Sunday for, for many of you because you think today is our 10th sermon in the book of Proverbs, maybe 11th, uh, and yet we didn't read a single thing from the book of Proverbs this morning, which raises interesting questions on what we're talking about today. Um, the, the notion, first let me say, the readings today, because if it's not clear by the end of the sermon how I came up with those three readings, then I failed. So I want to make it clear at the front end, which is uh, the, the psalm spoke of the fear of the Lord, and that's been one of the basis for the book of Proverbs. It's one of, been one of the ideas about what it means to become wise, is to be a person who practices the fear of the Lord. We've looked at that several times, but sort of as one word together, the fear of the Lord, this, this notion of, of what does it mean to fear God, and, and to displace ourselves to something greater, that there's something beyond us, something that instructs us, guide us, um, 
it's weird to use categories like knows more, but knows more um, is in touch with the universe is that, is that we sort of are grafted into that. Um, and so the first, the psalm, the fear of the Lord. The second, or the third, let's go to Lisa's reading, the, the strange one about demons, which I would love to preach on some someday. Sorry, that won't be today. Um, the, the second half of the sermon, I'm going to talk about the seven uh, cardinal sins, or as they're known to many people, the seven deadly sins, just briefly. Um, but that teaching is about this idea in which when we are freed from sort of um, what's disordering our souls, what's pulling us apart and towards disintegration, um, we begin to think we can make it on our own. And this is, this is a plight we see in, in several different ways, but most notably in our own lives, I think. You go two or three weeks or a month or one day <laughs> where you start congratulating yourself for not falling into whatever disorder ails you. And this could be from smartphones to alcohol to um, TV to yelling at your children to cursing your bras under your breath every chance you get to say, I want to do better at that. And what happens is, 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 is we begin to do that, we clean the house, but without sort of God's power, what happens is seven things rush in and take its place. And we find ourselves in more disarray. <laughs> Brian's laughing. You have a testimony you want to give about? No. <laughs> um, uh, the, um, but the reason for that, that, that reading, aside from that, related to sort of the seven, is, is the seven, the church uh, interpreters have taken those seven things sort of as the seven uh, cardinal sins, the seven deadly sins that sort of rush back in and take the place. So it's a typological reading of sorts. The seven is a reference to what we'll be talking about in the second half of the sermon. And, and then the reading that Brian read from Colossians. The main point of, of the sermon is, as we move towards what does it mean to what we've been defining wisdom as, is this art of skilled living. What does it mean um, to take off the old self and put on the new self as we move towards the art of skilled living. So all of this will flow out of the second half of Proverbs. This is from the Bible Project, which I know you can't read, but is our map of Proverbs that we've sort of been using. The last uh, nine, ten weeks, we've been talking about Proverbs 1 through 9, which are these predominantly lectures of a father to a son that includes the mother at times, and he's instructing them in that. Um, and then uh, we had these poems of Lady Wisdom, this, this personified nature of what wisdom is in the world, that, that you move into relationship with this thing. And she was set up in contrast with a Lady Folly, an adulterous woman, uh, several others. And, and it's interesting that the, the book of Proverbs, we'll talk about this more when we get to Proverbs 31 in two weeks, um, is structured about your relationship to several different women, it seems like. You know, um, are, are, you, are you following Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly? Are you moving into, into wisdom along these paths or not? But where we are now is the section 10 through 29, which is hundreds of ancient proverbs. Now, has, uh, this is a moment of confession, I guess. If you ever Google something and then Yet the answer is in bold at the top, right? Like sometimes it knows what you're looking for, which raises all sorts of questions, but it highlights it. So I looked up how many Proverbs are there. It's, it's a long time to count them all, and I didn't want to do that. And so somebody said 800. Now I'm pretty sure that's wrong. Um, and there were some answers below that. But let's say there's 800 Proverbs that make up that section. So I'm going to preach on each one of them today. 
no. Um, it, it becomes a hard thing to, to preach on these Proverbs, to, to sort of um, begin to live and move with them, to sort of have that wisdom come into our lives. But when we ask, what is the art of skillful living? What is the art of becoming wise? The content is filled out by those Proverbs. The content sort of comes from that. The first thing that co- sort of goes with that is the fear of the Lord, but then these practices after that. Now, what I want to say um, first, and we've said this before, is that those Proverbs are not promises. They are not guarantees. They are ways in which, in reality, in, when reality is properly ordered, this is the structure at which it, which it comes from. And part of what I would say is, is that the book of Proverbs comes from um, uh don't hear anything related to the American political spectrum when I use this word, comes from a conservative sort of vision of the universe, that when things are properly ordered, they function in this way, and that is good. And so the book of Proverbs is great when things are ordered properly. This is a a quote I've been thinking about for a long time. This is a British conservative, so again, think nothing about Republican or Democrat or anything related to this. Conservatism in this way is founded on love. Love what has been good for you, and forgiveness has what of what has been of, of what has not. Um, and what he's saying here, this guy passed away recently, in relation to the book of Proverbs, is that we grow to love this as wisdom for our lives. And where it's failed, or where it hasn't worked. It's for us to forgive what it has not been. We don't throw it off. So much of our world is bent on throwing off all these strictures. It's, it's, I don't know where this came from, but if you can find an exception to a rule, the rule just doesn't exist anymore. Um, whereas there's another saying, you know, it's the exception that proves the rule. Now, I would say that before I just leave conservatism out there, there's another biblical tradition that comes in the prophets. Now, the prophets see the world in such disorder that they aim to correct it. Again, you might call that liberal. I don't think our, we're so locked into the American scheme of thinking about these things. Don't hear anything related to any of our politics when I talk about this. But what happens when the prophets come is that they see that things that are supposed to be ordered and function in the way that Proverbs does, have become so corrupt, so empty, so unorienting, that they seek to, to sort of overthrow the present order's desire, that, that what it's done. And so you see this in sort of um, uh, Amos, and what they call forth is justice, um, that these things might be reset again. Um, someday, We'll preach about the prophets, but today is not that day. And so we are with Proverbs. The individual problems. Now, the quote on the back of the bulletin um, is, is essentially what I would say about these individual Proverbs and why they're so hard to preach on. The Proverbs are like little poems, each about the length of a haiku or a zen koa. Like these Asian literary forms, the biblical Proverbs are highly concentrated and sometimes riddling. Reflections on common elements of human experience. Read straight through, they are tedious, and they run together in the mind, for there is no plot, no consistency, uh, consistent development of logical argument or moral theme. But it's quite different thing when one encounters them as they are meant to be heard, and not, in the first instance, read. Proverbs are meant to be pondered one at a time. Medieval monks spoke of chewing the words of Scripture like grains of spice until they had their full savor. 
This is how the proverb should be learned. Memorize a single saying. You can do it while taking a shower, waiting at a bus stop, or chopping the vegetables for dinner. Let it sit in what the ancient Egyptian says is teachers, writers, and collectors of lies sayings called the casket of your belly for a day or a week or more, returning to examine it from a different vantage point of varied experience. If you give the book of Proverbs that kind of time, then it will yield to you its wisdom. You will begin to sense the particular forth with which each the passages addresses the hearer who positions herself to listen well. That's Ellen Davies, one of the commentators I've been following with as we go through the book of Proverbs. And what she's arguing there is that Proverbs begin to make sense as we memorize them and live with them. So you don't sit, and I, um, uh, if anybody wants one of these, these are like, I think, three or four dollars online. You can buy any individual book of the Bible with journaling space on the side um, and stuff like that. This is the one I got for Proverbs, and I was like, I will read through it a couple times. Like Ellen Davies, I found reading through the parts after chapter 9 to be tedious and painful, lacking plot and moral coherence. Um, And I would go, and something, though, would stick out, and then I would reflect on that one teaching. Um, And and that, I think, is where we're where we miss the book of Proverbs. So, so many people will sign up for reading the Bible in a year plans, which works great for the Torah or maybe the Gospels or something like that. But with Proverbs, it's misunderstanding the form or perhaps Psalms, which are meant to be prayers of our soul. Now, if you can bust through those as deep prayers for your soul, you're a better person than I am. Or if you can gain insight from reading a hundred of these in a row, but really what these are meant to be lived with and placed on our experience. And that's why they're so hard, I think, to preach on and to teach on. And so what I want to do is use two sort of organizing principles that come from church history to sort of work on these, um, uh, talking about these Proverbs. And it'll be the next two Sundays. The Sunday after that, before Labor Day Sunday, I will preach on the Proverbs 31 woman, which I am most stoked to do. Um, And then the Sunday after that, Labor Day Sunday, I have a choice between preaching on an individual psalm before our fall kickoff, or if I want to accept the gluttony for punishment that that can be there, I might try to preach on an individual proverb. Um, It'll either be the shortest or the longest, messiest sermon ever. Um, But that's where we're going from here, Galatians and the fall. So today, the organizing principle, though, that we're talking about is the... um, The early desert mothers and fathers, these are people who converted to Christianity around the end of the first century, second century, took themselves and moved out to the desert and further and further out to the desert to avoid the noise of the world around them, that they found the noise and the demands, the idolatry, and this was a clearly idolatrous age, although I would make the argument that ours is clearly an idolatrous age too, they move further and further into the desert and form these little communes to sort of like commit themselves to prayer and study of scripture. And this, I think, for us to understand is as a vocation. Not every Christian is called to do this. But these ones who took this on as their individual vocation to move further and further out into caves in the desert, um, what they did was they developed in their course of moral inventory in themselves the seven uh, cardinal sins. There were eight at this time, um, but they get they move throughout church history. So I don't want to give I'll give as best of a summary as I can uh, how this works. They named these seven things to sort of be a devotional practice, to be sort of this way of self examination. 
um, these seven sort of deadly sins. I can put them up here in the way that we would talk about them today. Um, but they, um, they take these seven things to be sort of a way of sort of understanding the soul's disorder, how the soul sort of leaves and goes to other things. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, and envy. Um, and is that not seven? Yes, pride. This one has them all. They actually, okay. Then the bulletin, it's wrong too then. This is great. Um, well, let's just end here. Um, no. Uh, the, in, this is the list of the seven again with their Latin, if that's your thing. Uh, gloss for other terms. And then they have the virtue that goes with them. So the virtue that sort of corresponds to lust is chastity. The, the virtue that, uh, so n- next week we're going to look at the virtues. Today is the sins. Um, today is, is sort of looking at these things. But anyways, they develop these around that time. And through church history, they get developed and honed over time. Then comes a list of seven cardinal virtues, seven sort of virtuous ways of sort of looking at the world. That, that we sort of move from one to the other. And what these are are meant to be devotional practices for ourselves, devotional practices for sort of examining in. And one of the things that if, if that, did the moral inventory thing tip anybody off? It's the fourth step, I think, of the 12 steps, or the third, to do a fearless moral inventory. Fourth, fourth step. The fourth step of the 12 steps is to do a fearless moral inventory. One of the things for myself, and I think for much of Christianity we've lost today, is that notion of what does it mean to do a fearless moral inventory of ourselves? That's just the way he is. That's just the way I am. Don't worry about that. That's how they are. Don't worry about that. I've always been this way. So much of the language we even use in the church exempts us from having to do an inventory of where our dysfunction lies. Now, the church had a, a word for sin. Uh, in cur- I can send you the PowerPoint, Don. Um, in curvita- that's from Wikipedia, though, so don't think I came up with that one. In curvitas and say, which is in sort of the, the heart or the self being curved upon itself is what happens in sinfulness. Um, I, I try to call it, um, that looks painful, but uh, a scoliosis of the soul is that our soul is collapsing upon itself and its disorder. And so one of the things that I think lost when we talk about these seven things is what they are is dispositions and habits that begin to overtake. I've tried to make this distinction before with a reading from the book of Isaiah, but the idea is that we have little sins we commit, and these are sins and these are bad. But what we also do is habituate ourselves take on habits of our souls and selves that recreate more and more of that dysfunction. And oftentimes, the church will work on a Dallas Willard, uh, there's two quotes that are coming to mind for this, a man who passed away recently too said, first off, that, that grace is the entry to the Christian life, but as we live it, it's not opposed to effort. All of taking off the old self and putting on the new self is a grace, and that's how we get there. But the second thing he came up with this is, is this beautiful praise, is that you, you get saved, and then you live in a gospel of sin management until you die. And essentially what you're doing there is just trying to uh, 
At least this is the way it feels to my friends. I won't say me. I mean me. Um, it's like whack-a-mole of sin. Like you, you, you knock one down and another one pops up and then another one pops up. And Willard says that this is a distorted view of the eternal life, the eternal kind of life that Jesus is offering us now. We, we don't need to move into a whack-a-mole of sinfulness, but to take on what it means to put on the new self that Christ is offering us. And so as an overarching way of looking at the 800 Proverbs, uh, asterisk, maybe not true, um, looking at them through the notion of what are the seven uh, virtues that we can take on that establish us in faithfulness, and what are the seven um, dysfunctions, vices, sins that can rush into our lives as we think we've cleaned the house and tear us down again. So this is, um, yeah, moving away from this sort of scoliosis of the soul. Um, I'm trying to decide just one thing real fast. Um, so the art of skilled living um, the last thing I want to talk about, and I've shown this before, but I really think it captures this quest for wisdom before we move into the individual seven sins, is this picture of a buffalo. Now, I know some of you remember when I used this before in relation to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a psalm that goes on forever and ever, and almost every verse contains a word for Torah, commands, law, something that God has instructed us to, and it's actually an acrostic poem um, in Hebrew too. So it's that's part of the reason why it goes on forever. Um, and what the argument I made, first off, if you, you want to go back, the Lady Wisdom becomes incarnate for us in Jesus Christ. Um, the Jews actually took the Torah and made that the incarnate version of wisdom, which is an interesting way to think about um, where does wisdom show up. For, for Christians, it's become definitively in Jesus Christ, all the words of Scripture we, we uh, admire as well. For the Jews, it's in that sort of written text. And so it works for this relation. But what I would say is this, this harping on of wisdom and gaining of wisdom in something like this is the story about this buffalo comes from a podcast called Mountain and Prairie, which is about life in the American West not a Christian podcast. But anyways, um, he sat down with an artist and he said, I want you to paint me a logo. And the guy was like, okay, what do you want on the logo? And he said, well, I want mountains, prairies, uh, a moose, a buffalo, maybe a bald eagle, um, some big trees, and a bunch of other stuff. And what he wanted was, you know, everything that captures mountain and prairie, the American West to him. And what he said is he came back with this single picture of a bison. That's the correct term, I guess. Um, and the single picture of the bison, what he said is everything became filled in around it. He said, when I looked at this, I saw the mountains I wanted in the background. I saw the river and the stream I wanted running in front of the bison. When I looked at this, I saw the birds and the other animals that would exist on this plain. He said, but that by focusing on this one thing, it filled in the rest of the world for me. You can imagine how bad the logo would be if he didn't, uh, if he got everything he wished for. And what I think that wisdom is calling us to do is to see the one thing and to let everything else be filled in around it. 
Wisdom isn't a calling to take in all of life and decide what is right, what is wrong, and be the wisest person you can, but to, but to focus and to see the thing, to have something before you, and then to let life be filled in around that. To fall for Lady Wisdom, to fall on that path, is to see that thing. And then by being oriented to that, this would be Psalm 119 as well, the rest of life begins to take shape around it. You begin to see other things from there. We fill in the rest from that. Let's move to the individual seven deadly sins. Um, and then, I, and with these, um, I have a proverb for each of them that goes underneath them. I may not, I, I won't read them all, but th- to say that each of these seven are encapsulated in the Proverbs. Um, so you can look it up and you can word search your Bible and find, you know, references to these seven things throughout um, uh, except for this one is not correct. Oh, craving. That's what it is. Lust and craving. Sorry. Um, uh, this is, uh, we're going to walk through the seven sins or uh, vices, whatever you want to call them, um, this week. And the next week we'll do the virtues, just to be clear. So I thought bad news first, good news second. Um, but these, like I said, are, are dispositions and uh, habituations of our heart and soul. These are things that we take on. St. Augustine, um, who we talk about often here, last year we did a book study with him, a fourth century, and he also wrote some on the seven deadly sins. I meant to say that this is, when we talk about things like this, people get to the accusation of Matt's a closet Catholic and he's going to ruin us all. Um, <laughs> uh, now I've... Now I've now, my, my, what I was going to say is Billy Graham even referred to the seven deadly sins. So um, from, from that second century period to today, I stand with Billy Graham, the peak evangelical of all evangelicals. So if you're worried that, like, I'm dragging you to Catholicism, Billy Graham, too, is dragging you towards Catholicism, and I don't know what to do about that. Um, I will say that, that uh, I wanted to just say a brief thing about that, though, is people say, oh, your church is becoming more Anabaptist, or your church is becoming more Catholic, or your church is becoming more Anglican, or your church is becoming more Eastern Orthodox. And I hear this from various people who, who sort of hear one thing we're doing and they run with it. And I say that, you know, actually, our church is becoming more good. Um, we look at the tradition in its wideness. Everywhere the church has done good things. And in our own way, we steal it and adapt it to our own context. And so in the creed that we read, and, and Shelly, you said you've gotten questions about this. In the creed that we read at the end of the service, um, or after the sermon, after the song, after the sermon, it says, I believe in the holy Catholic apostolic church. And what I, I take that to mean is I believe that God has been faithfully involved with the church since the beginning. That God has not abandoned us to having no faithful witness on earth. The church was not born when Martin Luther pounded his theses into the door. The church was not born when um, uh, a new American denomination, we've, we've kind of, we have more denominations than any other country. When a new American denomination is formed, the church is not formed otherwhere than in Pentecost and the gift of the Spirit and what Christ has done for us. And God's faithfulness in guiding us through that is what it is. So when we steal, borrow, 
learn from the depth of that tradition. We're doing nothing but looking at where God has been active and owning that. And as a fun uh, joke, is a favorite theologian of mine says that Anabaptists should be more Catholic, Catholics should be more Anabaptists, and nobody should be more Protestant. Um, which is a joke to say that the Protestant church was born out of a protest movement in the 1600s that was good and true and right. But if we are going to be faithful to what God is calling us today, perhaps it's not living in that place of protest, uh, unless it's against the disorder of the world, and more in what can we learn and gain as the people of God placed here on earth. So that's my short intro to avoid talking about the seven deadly sins. Lust. Um... One of the th- things as we go through these is many of these become virtues today, which is an odd thing. As I was reading about the seven deadly sins this week, there was a, an ad campaign in England from their version of Neiman Marcus, which might be Neiman Marcus. I can't remember what it was called. But anyways, they were uh, an ad campaign around coming and buying one of the seven deadly sins at the store. Lust today, in many places, you can find looked at as virtue. Um, there was an article I read several years ago about, you know, struggling with pornography and sexual addiction, and, and the person, psychologist, said, you know, one of the best solutions to this is to just stop thinking it's wrong. It's like, ah, that is bright. Um, that would be very effective, but also not the goal. It's to have life without guardrails or without limits is only going to live to its own neurosis and dysfunction and disrepair. And we can see that functioning in our modern world as well. But lust goes beyond, and I, uh, Jesus, when he talks about lust, he says whenever you look at a woman lustfully, is, I think a lot about look in our modern world. Where does our gaze fall? And this isn't just our, our gaze or look like towards the opposite sex, but more in our line of consumerism, of advertising, of billboards, of uh, the image-based thing that is Instagram or TikTok that sort of just absorbs and, and trains our eyes to fall in certain ways to say, I want that. This is similar to the three others we're going to start with, but it's using physical, goal, physical things to, to satiate a spiritual sort of need too is that we begin to capture these things and what we do is throw more and more into the well in which it will never be filled. And we live in this way um, with lust consuming others and consuming other things. And these things lead to a grand distortion that, that in curvitas and say, this, this collapsing of ourselves, and that we begin to just view people as objects to be consumed. And one of the ways, I think, in doing a moral inventory with this one is looking at the language we use for people. Eugene Peterson, who... Um, uh, Lisa read from his translation this morning, the message. Um, he had this way when he was leading his church, he, he could not stand when people said, that person is a great resource. Person isn't a resource, they're a person blessed by God to be part of your congregation. That, that what do you have invested into that person? Um, you know, we don't invest into people. Our language betrays what we think about this. And, and in your own workplaces and lives, you can, you can do this inventory yourself on like how we sort of monetize and use language for people that dehumanizes them in the process and turns them into goods that we can consume. Um, I think that's one of the things that we see um, 
often in our modern world is that we, we sort of move in those paths. And so to take an inventory and into which ways we're just um, looking around and consuming things. The next one is gluttony. Um, Robert Fair Capen, a, a priest, um, we're just doing people who died in the last century, also died in the last century. Um, he had this way of talking about Americans, which was great. He said, Americans, they, ev- they fast and feast like they work out or drink, which is to excess or not at all. Uh, I love the working out one because I live in Colorado now, and it's like you either like run up a mountain every morning or you don't run at all. Like we have, uh, you either eat um, grand feasts and, and you live in this good food mindset, never slumming down, never fasting, um, or you diet and track everything. I mean, if you were to come up with a modern form of what gluttony might be in our society, it could be dieting. This inability to actually enjoy and savor together food because we're always tracking how many points is that? Is that whole 30? Is, is that? And some of these, I, I don't want to belittle like real things. Like people are celiac. So if they ask, you know, are we, is the meal going to be pasta? It's like highly likely at my house. Um, well, I can't eat that because I'll get sick and die. That, I don't want to make jokes about that. But like we have this way of sort of like tracking everything so that we're never actually consuming together in that dieting phase. Um, fasting we talk about this every year at Lent too, is one of those things Jesus says when you pray, when you give, and when you fast. And we're like praying, okay, we should do that. Give, I will give to my church or give to other people. Little begrudgingly. Fast must be a recommendation for when I feel like it. He doesn't mean that one when you fast. Um, that, that we also don't live in a way of, of sort of withholding pleasure sometimes. We want pleasure always to be before us. And if we turn it down, it must be for some other reason than just when you fast, they say that your, your, your hunger is your body's prayer to God. You, you look at that growling in your stomach as if your body were anguishing for God as well. Um, to give that meaning today is extremely difficult. Um, so gluttony. Um, to sit and to savor together, to enjoy the goodness of God with your neighbors or friends in simplicity or in excess when it's called for is perhaps a way we can live forward with this one. Greed, I meant to find the picture from Wall Street, which is if you're older than me, you know it. If you're younger than me, you probably don't know it. Um, it Wall Street was a movie with Michael Douglas, but he had the famous phrases, David smiling already, what is it? You don't know? Greed is good. Greed is good. That was a classic American model. This parable might have been retold in The Wolf of Wall Street, which I've never been told, watched. But like it's this notion that greed is our heritage. Greed is how we build the world. Greed is how we uh, move. And this is uh, another misshapen desire, sort of bent around consumption. But what with greed is, is we begin to... Um, want more and more. And I think one of the things that comes from greed is we begin to exist in a moral imagination of, um, of emptiness. We begin to see that there's not enough, a moral imagination of scarcity. And so all we begin to think about is there's only enough for me and my family to survive. How do I get as much of it as I can? 
Our imagination becomes one not in which people can be provided for, um, we can provide for one another, we can offer spaces of hospitality, but in one in which we have to build up our own walls to sort of um, cave in in that way. Greed dis- disorders, um, I think, clearly enough in our modern world, our relationship to our neighbor at times, too. We're, we're always wondering if we're being taken advantage of um, over the most odd stuff, to be honest. Um, but I think for this one, I think there's a question, two questions for us to sort of take back as, as we do this inventory is what's enough? Um, what's enough in our lives? Um, you know, when I was in seminary, I had a job and Kelly told me, because she was making most of the money, that I had to make $600 a week. I don't remember. It was a part-time job, so I could do it. And somebody, one of my coworkers said, what would you do if they gave you a raise? I said, work less. Um, my goal is to make $600 a month or a week so that I can continue to study at seminary. So I would not want to make more than that. This is not a virtue I have all the time, but that was one of the few moments in my life where I was like, why, why would that help? Like I could just work less, which I think actually cost me a raise, which is a bummer. Um, they're like, well, that's not going to work for us. Um, we like you, but if you're just going to work less... Um, Uh, to ask what's enough, to set those, and then to have unstructured, and this is again with time, I think. The next one deals with time too. But to have unstructured time and money in your life so you can gift other people. And I mean that about time. Like it's, for some of us, it's much easier to write a check than it is to give time. Like to have unstructured money and time in your life to do that. Sloth. Sloth is one, um, we look at this as laziness often. Um, Sloth might be... uh, the diagnosis of our age. One of the things that I think of when I think of sloth is, and I've tried not to do this myself, how are you doing? Uh, I would guess the number one answer is busy. Um, And that type of busyness is akin to sloth in my ways. It becomes a default position. Like every time I see you busy, like I've asked you this question, and when I worked in coffee, I would ask this question, you know, 100 times an hour, um, and people would say busy. Like, you come here every day, and I've asked you this question for five years, and you're busy all the time? Like, have you thought about changing anything in your life or structuring things in such a way in which the thing that you suffer from the most is busyness? And I think all of us in the modern world feel this the most, particularly as everywhere you look, a new productivity craze is coming about. Um, is that we feel the need to optimize all our time, and in that optimization, we create our own slothfulness, I think rather than accepting time as it is. There's laziness as well, although I think as I look at you guys, I see a, a group of healthy, upwardly mobile, good people that I don't think I need to lecture to about the actual laziness, but more in the ways in which we sort of fill ourselves. And so what does it mean to, to sort of um, resist that cult of busyness? Wrath. Um, in the modern world, we see people just driving around with rage built up within them. Um, I was walking my dog across a wood path this week, and a woman uh, who's older, her husband behind her who's older and on oxygen, says to me, and my dog doesn't bug people, particularly on leash, but for some reason in her mind, and it was a wood path, she said to me, she whispered to me, because I was with my kids, weren't here now. She said, if your dog knocks over my husband, I will kill you and your dog. The heck is going on in that person's life? Um, And that was easy to pick on her. But when you're stuck in traffic, when things aren't working the way that you want them to work, 
when something keeps popping out that's supposed to bend a certain way. If you live in a city, when you're putting together IKEA furniture, does wrath show up in your life? And when it falls apart a month later, does wrath appear again? We exist in a, in a period of anger that heightens and rises within us. And what does it mean for us to adapt ourselves back to positions of peace in the world? To not walk around with preserves of anger. Which brings us to the next one, envy, which um, I just want to, to make a quick note about resentment in the way that it goes with envy. I think that envy for us shows up often in this period of resentment. Re- re- resentment of people who have more than us, resentment of people who, who have different uh, politics or risk levels or whatever than us. We live in a resentful age where we think we know what's better for everybody else, and that's its own form of envy. Envy also has this way in which you look at what another person has, and not only do you want it, you want to deny it to them. Um, you want to take it away from them. It's not that they have more or better or this, but you would really like it if they were a little bit more below you. Um, this is uh, shows up in our contemporary language of eat the rich, or there was a petition that got a ton of money or a ton of signatures to leave Jeff Bezos in space, which I'm not pro Jeff Bezos or not, um, but it wasn't enough that Jeff Bezos has more, that we should just leave him in space is the solution to that problem. And these are, are funny light things, but I think they represent something deeper within our neurotic moment that like, um, I mean, it got, you can look it up, a ton of signatures. Um, to accept our limits, to give thanks for what God has given us can be a solution to envy. And I will say, um, that, that counting um, your sins, doing this moral inventory is also akin, the reverse would be counting our blessings to count what has, been, has done for us. If you find yourself trapped in envy, perhaps count the good things that you have. Pride, pride is the goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is in the classical tradition, tradition, the beginning of all these sins, the worst and the one that we see asserted the most. And this is partially because I think it names that we improperly see ourselves as something higher than we are. We assert ourselves in ways in which we are not there. Um, when you're prideful about something, you, you adjust yourself, and what you become is not just a heightened version of yourself. You become somebody who lacks sinfulness and creatureliness in a way that says you are beyond. The reverse one of this is humility. We'll talk about it next week, but it, having a proper view of yourself is, is, is part of being, I think, a good and whole person. So to say, to be um, the best guitar player in the world, when people say you're really good at that, to say, no, I'm not, is to live a lie. Um, false humility isn't good either. Um, if, some, if, somebody's, if you're good at something and people praise you for it, the solution isn't to pretend like you're not good at it. Um, And so pride, I think, shows up in in dysfunctional ways for us often in the world. So those are the seven. Brian, I did seven that time. Okay, we'll end here. The fear of the Lord is the practice in which God is calling us into uh, most in the book of Proverbs. It's this displacement of self. And going back to that, that reading that Brian read for us, it's this taking off of the old self. 
that we do in our baptisms, that we do in our daily lives, that we do in confession, which we'll do after the song every Sunday. We take off our old selves to know our old selves, to see where these seven things come in, to work and to, to hear God's holiness calling us deeper, and then to put on the new self that Christ has for us. This Sunday, it's a lot of taking off the old self. Next Sunday, we'll talk about the new selves we put on as Christ calls us higher and higher and further into himself. Let us pray. God, you have called us towards wisdom, skillful and artful living in the world. Today we heard about the ways in which our own dysfunction can dissolve that. We can curve upon ourselves. Our spines can begin to distort and hunch us over. But through your Son, Jesus Christ, you offer healing, a restoration, a new life, and a new self. As we inspect ourselves, May we do so under the guise of your grace that continually floods into us, lifting us up and setting us on the path to follow you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.